Good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you all tonight. This evening, we're continuing in our series, Re-Revolution, about the ways the identity and vision of our church has grown over the last 11 years. Tonight, we're looking in particular at one of the little turns of phrases that we have used most consistently in that time, which is that we want to be a church that is a safe place to ask the hard questions about God and faith. Back in 2010, when Meredith and I first visited Revolution, this was actually the slogan that most hooked me as a visitor. We had just moved to Maryland from Columbia, South Carolina, where we had helped to plant a small church focused on reaching people in, in what's a university town. And our pastor at that church, a, a guy named James, was one of the smartest and most biblically literate people that I have ever known. And he was somebody that I trusted to teach me about the faith that I've been a part of my whole life. And I was really excited about finding a church here in my new home, here in Maryland, where I could keep asking questions and learning about the richness and the fullness of Christian religion. So when I discovered that revolution was a place where questions were welcomed, where questions were even encouraged, I remember thinking to myself, hey, this is a place where I could fit in. It might even be a place where as a teacher, I have something I can offer. Now, I suppose the degree to which that has been true is still up for some debate, but it definitely looks like I at least went for it. But in any case, what made that little bit of culture building connect with me so strongly was that it resonated with my own journey. I'm somebody who wants to understand the work that I'm a part of. I want to see the big picture as much as I can because I believe that helps me discover what role I have to play in it. So if this really is a place interested in questions, well, I'm, I'm in. But in a nutshell, what I've discovered in the past 11 years, both here at Revolution and in my life more generally, is this. I've discovered that questions are most useful. Questions have the most impact on our lives when they exist within a relationship. And this, this in particular, is the riddle that Jesus alone solves. Here's, here's what I mean. Think about the last time that you changed your mind. I'll actually pause here for a second so you can get a hold of something in particular. Now, what has the impact of that change been in your life? Weirdly, I would wager that the impact has probably had an inverse correlation to how big and important the topic is. Over the last six months, I, for one, have changed my mind about broccoli, and that has been a pretty impactful change. I used to avoid broccoli, and now my family and I eat it probably once a week. But whether broccoli is good or bad is a pretty small topic in the scheme of things. But at the same time, in that same stretch of time, I've been pressured by our culture to form an opinion about all sorts of quote-unquote big things and to get really passionate about those things, even though I have almost no ability to actually relate to them. Suddenly, we're all experts on booster shots, on the Supreme Court, 
on transatlantic politics and nuclear submarines and the tragic relationship between two 20-year-olds on Instagram. And my point is not that we shouldn't be involved or think about things like this or that we shouldn't be involved or think about our culture. We should. Rather, what I want to suggest is that one of the toxic things about our society is that we see and read so much that we struggle to engage with the world beyond the activity of forming a hot take about things. And in the politically polarized times we live in, we even tend to take those, those ideas we, we form, those hot takes, those beliefs, and then group them in red and blue camps that they really have no business being in. And the sum result of this, the culmination of this, is that we live in a culture of very, very loud answers, but very shallow and short-lived relationships with the questions. Now that I'm cool with broccoli, I eat broccoli on the reg. Now that I've made up my mind that the debt ceiling is an antiquated construct, I argue with my grandma on Facebook about it, and then I forget about it in two weeks. The bigger the question, the louder I want to talk about it, but the less impact I allow for it to have in my day-to-day -day life. I've traded having an opinion about the big things for a real relationship with them. So can you begin to see then the problem that we're facing in that kind of a culture as a church? After all, we're here to talk about, to even sing to the biggest thing there is. But are we investing in our beliefs? Letting those beliefs get deep under our skin and actually transform our lives? Or are we fixating on right answers and angry hot takes? Which is a way of saying, how, how do we have a broccoli type relationship or a broccoli type response to a bigger than politics type God? The good news is that our problem isn't a new one. In fact, it's the same problem at work in the religious culture of the Jewish people in the time of Jesus' incarnation on this earth. In first century Israel, the battle lines were drawn between the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, who lived for more than a thousand years in the promised land of Palestine, and the Roman Empire, who had succeeded the Greeks as the rulers of the region some 70 years before Jesus' birth. So in this context, Rome is the enemy, not just of the Jewish people, but also the enemy of their God. So the biggest political question of Jesus's day turns out to also be a religious question. And that question is, how can we entice God to set us free? And the answer the religious leaders of the time believed was by reviving a legalistic faith. The people needed to be reminded of the right answers, the right hot takes about God. And then the idea was that if enough people believed those right answers, then God would be moved to come to their rescue. And this is the culture of the Pharisees. And it's one focused, whether for good reasons or for bad ones, on superficial agreement.
The Pharisees were in this mad rush to get every Jew in Palestine back in line under the ancient laws. But when he arrives on the scene, what is Jesus's biggest complaint about these religious leaders, about the Pharisees? Well, he says over and over that they think they know everything about God. They have the right answers, but they don't listen to him. Jesus says the Pharisees are deaf and blind and hypocritical. In Matthew 23, he says specifically, they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. All their works they do to be seen by men. Which is a way of saying that the Pharisees might know the answers, but they don't live in relationship with them. But why? Well, the reason for this is pretty clear in the Bible. The Pharisees don't dig into the deeper truths that all of their right answers should lead them to because, well, doing that would slow things down. It would open a door that they didn't want to open in their community, this community where they're trying to get everybody on the same page. It's a door that would lead to uncertainty, that could lead to questions, that could even lead to doubts. So to take that back to our earlier point, the Pharisees are all hot takes in no relationship, which ends up being just wildly ironic because Jesus is God walking and speaking and available for actual relationship. It turns out that the God whose attention they are trying to get with all of this legalistic behavior is actually right there. He is the answer to the questions they have, that we all have, about the biggest thing there is. But even those who seem to be looking for him don't see him. They don't understand that he's here because they don't want to wrestle with any mysteries. They don't have time for it. The clock is ticking. Rome is here. We're waiting on a big rescue. And we're not interested in challenges to be a real blessing to the poor or to the widow, or even to be a blessing to those Roman soldiers who are walking the streets of your town, who you're trying to get out. The Pharisees have built this culture, in other words, that is set on winning and not on growth. There's no time for the slow work of changing your mind and changing your life. So I wonder, have you ever felt that way? Now, of course, not every Pharisee who met Jesus rolled their eyes at the intimacy and the commitment that Jesus was asking for. The Bible, in fact, tells us the story of one Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who did try to gain a deeper understanding of his faith. The account of Jesus' of Jesus's, uh, meeting with Nicodemus, Nicodemus is found in John chapter 3, and it goes like this. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replies, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. 
how can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answers, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Now, this story illustrates the nature of the tension that we're talking about. Nicodemus is willing to take one step towards Jesus, and he's willing to ask Jesus the kinds of questions that he needs to have answered if he's going to really get behind him. And that's what he's doing here. He's trying to figure out, you know, I'm willing to give you more of a chance than my friends, than the other Pharisees are, but you need to prove to me that you are legit, that you are, that you know what you're talking about. But the problem, of course, when you're doing that is what you're really doing is trying to form a hot take about Jesus, to choose a side. And when faced with that in the person of Nicodemus, what does Jesus do? Well, what he does is he presents a deeper mystery. He tells Nicodemus that not only can he not give him a quick answer so he can form a hot take, instead, he tells Nicodemus that Nicodemus needs to go all the way back to his own beginning to be born again, if he's going to really live in accordance, not with the law, but with who Jesus calls the spirit here, or the living breath of God that transforms and brings to life all of creation. And confronted with that, you can sense Nicodemus's frustration. He has no idea what to do. But that's mostly because Nicodemus is still anxious about how deep and profound the thing is that Jesus is calling him to. Jesus is calling him not to a right idea. Jesus is calling him to an obedient life. Now, I don't have a nice bullet-pointed list of takeaways today, but I do have this one point that I want us to make sure we all understand, and it's this. It is one thing to have the courage to ask a hard question. But the more important thing is to have the patience and the hope necessary to really trust the answer. To live in relationship with that answer. To live in pursuit of it. Because right answers change our lives they don't just help us win arguments or help us feel like we're on the right side of a culture war. Or at least they shouldn't. That encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus ends with what is without a doubt the most well-known verse in the New Testament, if not the most well-known verse in the Bible altogether. Even if this is your first time walking in the doors of a church, I would bet you've seen it. The verse is John 3.16. And it reads like this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
Now, oftentimes, this verse is presented as the most right of all the right answers. This verse tells us, clear as day, that the way to eternal life, the way to heaven, is through belief in Jesus Christ. So, boom, believe and you get in the gate. But if we take a step back and we put this verse and, and the easy answer and the, the right answer that it gives us into the context of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus with a Pharisee, we might recognize that the second part of this statement, which comes in verse 17, may be at least as important as the first. And in verse 17, here's what Jesus says. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. What was the big problem that the Pharisees were trying to solve? It was the Roman occupation. It was even more the problem of Rome's dominance all across what they thought of as the entire world. This is the reason that the Pharisees don't have time for all of Jesus' talk about the poor and the lowly, for all of Jesus' one-on-one ministry going about forgiving and healing and washing feet. They keep saying to him, hey, there is a big picture crisis out here. Why are you, Jesus, so fixated on random nobodies when there is real evil and real oppression out here in the world on a giant scale? We all need to get on the same page, get back on the path of self-righteousness and ritual under the law until we get God's attention. And then God will save us from our enemies. And then we can have time for all the little stuff, all the people stuff. And I got to tell you, friends, You and I today live in the same exact culture as that. With that same sense of panicked urgency. There's brokenness in the world. Evil is being done on a giant scale. Let's all go get on the same page about our faith and then go fix it. But the author of John's Gospel says this. He says, God sent his son into the world, not to condemn it, which is what the Pharisees want God to do, to condemn the Roman world. But that's not what his son has been sent in the world for. Instead, the author says that God sent his son to save that very world through him. To save it through him. Which means there is no shortcutting the relationship In fact, the relationship is the means that God is using to save the world. In Jesus, the big picture and the little picture come together. Our questions find an answer. And that answer sends us all the way back to the beginning and calls us to actually live life differently. And then Jesus teaches that different kind of life will be the thing that manifests the different kind of world that you're hoping for. If you've spent much time in the church, you might have become numb to the thing Jesus says here about being born again. That phrase has been pretty well emptied of its meaning 
in church culture. And we most often use that phrase as just a synonym for getting saved or becoming a Christian. But whoa, if you pause and think about it, that phrase is so much more. Think for a minute about how big, how all-encompassing the idea of that phrase is. If you discover the right answer to not just your personal problems, but the right answer to the whole world's problems in Jesus, that isn't like winning the lottery or unlocking a super weapon or signing a star player at the trade deadline, which is to say that it's not something that changes the course of things moving forward. It's a discovery instead that sends you back to the beginning. It doesn't fix your current life. It invites you to live an altogether new one. To actually rethink who you are and to allow God to remake who you are becoming. When we say that we want to be a safe place to ask the hard questions, that is just half of the equation because we also need to be a patient place to be changed by the answer. Here's the most important thing I ever really changed my mind about. I grew up in a house of boys. I'm the oldest of three sons. My dad was an active part of my childhood. And from as far back as I can remember, my parents taught me that an important part of any man's job was to protect and provide for women. And then the church that I grew up in nailed this point home by teaching me that it isn't just a cultural norm to do those things. It is a responsibility given by God. So I grew up thinking that was my role in the world. I was here as a man to protect and take care of women. And in every way, I thought that this was noble and healthy and good. Looking back, I see how that mentality shaped my friendships, how it shaped my dating relationships, all the way up until I began dating the woman who is now my spouse, Meredith. But a few weeks into dating Meredith, she challenged this whole structure. I remember one day that she told me that I was condescending to the women around me, including her. And when she said that, I, I cannot tell you how much I just couldn't believe it. And I'm pretty sure I even said back to her something along the lines of, if anything, I put women on a pedestal. And she said some version of, yeah, exactly. You think that we need someone like you to save us. And as much as I wish I could say it was, the truth is, that wasn't some aha moment for me. In that moment, I don't know that anything changed. I think I was mad. But what she said stuck in my mind. And in time, I started to realize that protecting and providing were idols of mine. And they put me in a position in my relationships with, with the women in my life. They put me in a position that actually belongs to God, that those idols elevated me, 
And I started to discover that Meredith and I and her relationship were supposed to protect each other. That we were supposed to trust each other, to help and provide for each other. And this shift began to ripple out into my relationship with my mom and my relationship with my female friends. And, and now it still is rippling out into my relationship with my own daughters. Because I want my daughters to grow up knowing that they can lean on me. But I also want them to know that they are equal human beings who I can lean on too. Years later, it was this same erosion in how I understood what it meant to protect and to provide that then led to other changes in my life too, from how I thought about security and protection as a man in my home and all that stuff. My ideas changed and then it, this shift even shaped my decision to take jobs later in my career that may pay less, but jobs that I hope set a better example for my children about what it means to invest in and love the people around them. I changed my mind about who I was. I started to learn that I'm not the hero of the story, and that change happened slowly in one relationship, and it has gone on to transform my other relationships little by little too. And there are a few of you here tonight who would punch me if I didn't add to this, that I'm not done, that I'm still changing. But I don't have myself or my roles entirely figured out yet. I still say and, and discover that I believe really backwards and, and stupid things. And that's okay. This slow change is the goal. I don't just want the quick fix of a right answer I want to be transformed by the truth into someone whose life better respects it and honors it. So I want to say it is a good goal to be a safe place to ask the hard questions. But we have got to be careful that never becomes a smart place to find the right answers. Revolution must be a humble place where truth transforms relationships, starting with us. And the enemies of that work are doubts that don't really go anywhere and hot takes that pressure us to get on the right side, even if we don't have the foundations in our relationships with either God or with other people to stay there. Speaking of changing our minds, I feel like it's important to say that if you've been confused by this sermon tonight. That makes total sense. It's kind of a mess. I changed my mind about what to say about 10 times this week, and I never was able, at least I felt, to kind of hammer this thing out. My hope is that there have been parts of this that have resonated with you. But if I can close with just a few more words about where my heart is at, here's what I want to say. Don't be in a hurry. Don't let the pressure to get things right lead to shortcuts when it comes to your beliefs about Jesus or about Christianity or about God. Remember that Jesus himself calls us to go back to the beginning with him, to be born again, which tells us, one, that he's in no hurry. 
and also tells us that what we most need in life is to see ourselves as God sees us, as his children, who he will patiently and graciously raise into his own wisdom. So if you've never thought of your relationship with God in this way, if you think that maybe when you put it that way, you've never actually been born again in this way that Jesus talks about, in this mysterious way he talks about, then maybe today is the day that you can accept Jesus' offer to you of a real reset. And if if you're feeling the pull of that, I want you to know that's not just an okay thing to do. It is the best possible thing to do. Because it's a choice that can lead you from a place of insecurity and panic and fear to a place of patience and hope and growth. And it would be amazing if that was a step you wanted to take. Now, if you're somebody who would say you're already on this journey, my question and challenge for you is is I wonder, have you stayed humble along the way? Are you ever guilty, as I often am, of waving Jesus off and thinking, no, I've got this. I know the right answer. If so, maybe tonight, maybe today is the, is the time that you own up to that impatience with him. There's no safer place than your prayers and no safer person than Jesus. So talk to him about that here in a moment when we receive communion. And for all of us, no matter where we are, my prayer is that we will take our stand together against arrogance and hot takes and silver bullet answers and choose instead a culture of sincere questions that lead us into deeper relationships, both with our Savior and with each other. That, that is a church that lives up to a name like Revolution. A word which we sometimes forget means to go all the way back to the beginning. So what is this thing that we are trying to believe? This thing that can slowly but surely transform us if we just open ourselves up to that. Get out of our own way. Take a deep breath. What is the thing we're trying to believe? We're trying to believe that God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son. And whoever believes in him, whoever does the hard work of believing in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. For he did not send his son into the world, the Roman world, our world, to condemn it, but rather to save that world through him. I'll pray for us and we'll continue in worship.
this evening. Thanks.